Check. Is that better? There we go. Whoops. So anyway, their gifts aren't great, and that's okay. You know, I don't, I'm not a monster, by the way. I'm kind of joking about this, because even though the quality of their artwork is not great, um, they're still, it's still meaningful, right? James brought home something the other day that he made at school for Mother's Day, and you know, all the words are spelled wrong and stuff on it, but Abby's reading it, you know, and she's like tearing up, reading this thing that's it's laminated, you know, and he, uh, um, as she get, is reading it, and the thing is, Abby's not one to keep all the stuff, okay? She doesn't want to, we don't have boxes of their artwork, we don't save every scrap of paper, you know, she's okay to throw it away, but she's reading this thing and tearing up, and she says, we're keeping this forever, you know, like, okay, we can, and it really got to her, even though, you know, the pictures were crazy, and the words were all misspelled, and um, Last year, when James first started learning to read, he would start getting post-it notes and leaving notes all over things. And sometimes it was, I love daddy, which is sweet. Sometimes he would just start labeling things. You know, door. Uh, my, the bookshelf that I used for a nightstand, it was bushelf. B-U-S-H-E-L-F. Bushelf. And I was like, okay, it's a bushelf. And so I, but I, even though they're like mis- all crumpled and, I mean, they're misspelled, I kept them, you know, because the quality doesn't necessarily mean um, everything about those little pieces of art. And then the flip side is true. Um, if you've ever gotten a really nice Christmas card from a company that you, whose services you use, you know, um, you know, you get it in the mail, and you're like, ooh, this is a really nice Christmas card. I can't wait to see what's from. And you open it up, and you're like, oh, it's from my insurance company. And you, and you throw it in the trash, right? And it's a beautiful card, but who it's from, there's like, there's no heart behind this. There's no love behind this. It's a form thing. They just stuck my address on this card. They didn't care, and so we, we toss it. But we get these beautiful cards that don't mean anything, and we get these sloppy, crinkly haphazardly done pieces of art from our kids, and they mean the world to us. And it's interesting how that can work. And so today we're going to kind of talk about something like that. Um, Last week we began a series called What Would Jesus Undo? Not what would Jesus do, but what would Jesus undo? Because I believe that there are certain attitudes and perspectives and maybe even practices or mindsets that have wound their way into our lives as Christians, wound their way into how we live as a church family. And these are things that aren't supposed to be there. Attitudes, beliefs, that, that if Jesus could, he would reach in and just rip those right out of our minds. They are not meant to be there. And so this series is kind of about the fact that I think Jesus, in certain areas, wants to perform some spiritual amputations in our life to cut out things that aren't supposed to be there. And this week we're going to talk about something that uh, it can be a tricky subject to talk about in church. It's the thing that nobody, I don't know, people get sensitive sometimes when we talk about the subject, but here it is. Hollow worship. Jesus would undo our hollow worship. Let's define what I mean by hollow, what I mean by worship. Okay, hollow, empty, dried out, joyless, heartless. It can look okay on the outside, but when you dig into the middle of it, the meat of it, if there's nothing there, it's just empty and hollow. Now we need to define worship. In churches, if I asked, I bet, without Leading into this, if I just gave out a piece of paper and asked you to write one word describing worship, what word would you write? Music. I know most of you would probably write music. I would most of the time. If I had to write one, oh, music probably. But here's the thing. When we talk about worship, we almost always say music. We say worship music. When we talk about the time of worship, most of us think, oh, that's the song time. Uh, Christian radio play worship songs. Those are songs about God. That's what we think worship is, just a song about God. But that's not really the case. We need to understand that worship does not mean 
music. Worship does not mean music. Now, music can be worshipful, but the word worship itself does not automatically mean acoustic guitar, piano, doesn't mean that. People singing, that's not what it means. Um, Let me show you um, some of the words that the New Testament translates into the word worship. I'll give you, these are the top three words, most common Greek words in the New Testament translated as worship in reverse order. Number three, sabo. To express your devotion to God through some gesture or ceremony. This is a going through some sort of a religious activity, if you will, to express devotion to God. Now that could be a song. Okay? Singing a church song, that can be a gesture or ceremony type aspect that we go through where we are expressing devotion to God. Um, La truo. To earnestly serve often by effort or sacrifice. Um, there'll be certain... Uh, passages in the New Testament that will talk about worship God through fasting. Okay, fasting is a tough thing. Okay, we're real bad at it in America. I mean, we can't, like, it's like, well, maybe if I get the small fries, maybe that'll count this time, and I can, instead of giving up every, all the food, I can just, you know, cut back maybe. Um, we don't like to fast. It's a hard thing for us, but when it, in those passages where it often says worship with fasting, worship can some, is sometimes translated, or sometimes this word, latruo, something serving God in a way that requires effort or sacrifice. But the most common word translated worship in the New Testament, and the meaning of this word is something totally foreign to us in 21st century America, Proskuneo means to, means to bow down on the ground before someone important, like on your knees, face to the floor, before someone. That's what this word means. Now, we don't do that, ever, okay? You don't walk in to a job interview and acknowledge this guy is like the high-up manager for the department you're trying to get a job in. Oh, sir, it is so great to meet you. Ma'am, I am, I am honored to be in your presence. I am humbly submitting to your authority as I seek to get employment at your humble establishment. We don't do anything like that. We shake hands. You know, that's the kind of stuff we're used to. But this was a sign of dependence and submission because when you bowed before somebody, I mean, if they wanted to pull out a sword and, like, stab you in the back or something, you were totally at their mercy. It was a completely a submissive act, an act of admiration and dependence on them. So you'll notice not a one of those words has anything to do with music. Every one of them has way more to do about the position of your heart, the stance of your heart before the one you're worshiping. So hollow, dried out. Worship, we'll define it this way. Worship is an activity through which you express your heart of devotion to God. It's an activity, some sort of Thing, something you do, a prayer you pray, a song you sing, um, something you study, it is a posture of your heart and, and being able to express that heart of devotion to your God. So therefore, hollow worship, here's how we're going to define hollow worship moving forward. Hollow worship is going through the motions of devotion without a heart of devotion. It's going through the motions without it really even meaning anything. And... Um, you know, here's the thing that's, that's tricky, is you can go through a whole church service. You can sing all the songs, you can listen to the sermon, you can stand and sit and stand and sit when you're supposed to, you can pray the prayers and never once worship God. You can go through all the motions, you can look just like a good, perfect Christian in church, never say a cuss word, you know, all, you can say all the right things, do all the right things, and never once worship your Creator. That's hollow worship. Now, let's talk about some of these um, acts of devotion, these ha- or motions of devotion, these ways that we can express ourselves to God. Um, okay, whoops, I'm cutting ahead here. Sorry about that. 
Um, singing songs, like I said, worship does not mean singing, but singing can indeed be worship. We sing songs to God. That is one of the biggest things we get wrong the second musicians get on a stage. Because any other place in the world where you are sitting in seats or being in rows and someone gets up on a stage to play a song, you're the audience. But in church, you are not the audience. We are all the band, and God is the audience. We are singing to him. We are singing praises to honor him, to express our gratitude, our heartfelt devotion to him. So singing can be worshipful. So can intently listening to a sermon. If you, if you approach a time when the Bible is open and the Bible is preached as, okay, God, your word is being opened. I want your word and your Holy Spirit to shape me. I, want to, I, I submit myself to be shaped and molded into who you want me to be through this time of having your word opened and preached. That can be an act of worship. When we come together um, to pray at the end of our service every week for people who are hurting or lift up praises for, for ways God has worked, those can be moments when we are submitting to God's power. Saying, God, these situations are bigger than me, but I, we lift them up to you because we know you're good and you're capable. That can be worship. So worship does not just mean music. It can be every single aspect of those moments when we come together to honor God with our hearts, with our voices, with our devotion. But hollow worship, it means you're present for every single one of those. You take part in every single one of those. But your focus, your attention is never really on God. Now, during Jesus' ministry, he dealt with people who had this problem. People who, who would go through all of the little religious motions, but somehow they missed out on what was supposed to be behind it, the heart of the matter. If you want to go ahead and grab a Bible, we'll be in Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. I believe it's, uh, if, you got, if you have a Bible, awesome. If you want to use one of the black Bibles, it's on page 820, I believe. And uh, the verses will also be on the screen here behind me. And these people, again, they're doing what we're talking about. It's a, they, they look like they're worshiping. They look like the most religious people. But somehow they've missed the key element, which is the heart behind the activities. It's not about the activities, but the heart behind it. Here we go. The Pharisees, then Pharisees and scribes, basically priests and Jewish law lawyers. Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. They, came, they made a trip to ask him this question. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, if someone said, I walked here for days, and I have an important question for you. Why didn't your kids wash their hands before dinner? Like, the, well, well that, all right, that's kind of a weird, like, that you made that big trip just for this one little question. And, you know, it's, it is a fair question. Why, why wouldn't you wash your hands before you eat? I mean, we know, we know what's lurking around in the world, right? We have seen pictures of, of gunk through microscopes. We've read the articles about how dirty our keyboards are, dirtier than, you know, toilet seats, how, how dirty our kitchen counters are, how dirty certain things are. We know how germy the world is, right? And so, uh, you know, you, we think, okay, yeah, you've got to wash your hands, okay? Um, I took a microbiology class in college, and the teacher just kind of wanted to show there's germs on everything. That was the point. So he gave each person in the class a couple Petri dishes with that gunk in it that germs grow on, and he gave us a bunch of cotton swabs, and he said, go around, swipe whatever you want. He was like, go anywhere on campus, swipe anything you want, Wipe your Q-tip on it and then, you know, wipe it on the, the Petri dish. We'll come back. We'll put it in the incubator and see what happens. 
it didn't matter what we wiped on that Q-tip on in honor of the Petri dish. Everything grew something. Door, your car door handles, keyboard. It was, it was awful. And I came to a point in the microbiology class looking at all the gunk that had grown in those Petri dishes, and I realized I'm at a turning point in my life. Either I'm going to become a germaphobe that is scared of everything in the world because it's all dirty, or I've got to just get over it and say, everything's dirty. Okay, I just got to go into the world and just realize I'm going to get germy. Okay? I came to this moment. I remember thinking that too. And, and so we wash our hands because that's what we're thinking. That's not what they're thinking. The reason they're all about washing hands is not the germs, because they didn't know germs were a thing. Um, the reason they were so into it is because these priests and these Jewish lawyers were obsessed with something called ceremonial cleanliness. Ceremonial cleanliness. To the devout Jew, there was two categories of everything, clean and unclean. There were clean animals and unclean animals. It was okay to touch and work with clean animals, not okay to work and touch with uh, unclean animals. Um, there were clean ways to prepare your food, unclean ways to prepare your food. And there were a lot of things in the world that could make you unclean. If you had any sort of bodily discharge, you were unclean. If you had any type of skin condition or rash, you would be considered unclean. If you touched a dead body, you were unclean. And unclean meant that you were, in a sense, unfit to worship God. You were too dirty to approach God in, in the temple and worship him. And so they had these elaborate processes for moving from unclean to becoming clean. And sometimes they would just require time. You know, after this amount of time, then you can start being clean again. Um, often they would require some sort of elaborate washing process. Wash this seven times and, and then you can be considered clean. And so they thought that Jesus' disciples were unclean or going to become unclean because they didn't wash their hands before they ate. And this goes back to the fact that they thought uncleanliness was transferable. They thought ritual, ceremonial uncleanliness was, was contagious. Um, meaning like, let's say, again, touching a dead body made things unclean. Let's say there was a blanket that touched a dead body. The blanket was unclean. If that blanket somehow made its way onto your bed, your bed was now unclean. If you sat on your bed, then you became unclean. If you went up and gave your spouse a hug, now they're unclean. It could transfer from one person to the other like a disease. And so they were concerned with uncleanliness passing. And, and they created, because they were so concerned about uncleanliness, they created rules. See, it says the tradition of the elders. These Jewish priests created rules over and above God's law. See, God's law has plenty to say about being clean and unclean. But these guys created more rules about how to stay clean, what made you unclean. And one of the rules, and they, it, they get weird with it, okay? And here's what, for a time, they believed that your hands were pretty much unclean most of the time. Because you did so much with your hands, you did a lot of things, you touched a lot of things, um, that you, your hands were almost always unclean. But not the rest of your body. So your hands from here on down could be unclean and the rest of you could be clean. And so they were worried that their unclean hands, unwashed hands, would touch food and the food would be unclean. And then they would eat the food, it would go into their bodies and the rest of their bodies would be unclean. And then anything they did, they would contaminate the uncleanliness. So they were real worried about all of this ceremonial cleanliness. And they looked so pious and so religious for caring so much about being religiously clean so all the people could approach God in a holy and, and powerful way. And so they were obsessed with cleanliness. And they said, come on, Jesus, why aren't your guys being clean? Why aren't your guys following our rules? And so Jesus then goes on to uh, call them out. He says, okay, you guys have made so much of your rules that you are missing out on God's law. 
You're, you're elevating your little religious hoops to jump through above even what God wants us to do. And then he kind of really calls them out um, down in verse 7. We're going to jump down to verse 7 as he quotes the prophet Isaiah. He says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy, prophecy of you when he said, these people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Hollow, empty, meaningless activities. Teaching the doctrines of men, or teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He's like, you guys have all these rules, what it means to look like to be holy and to be worshipful. And you care so much about those that you're missing out on the actual element behind what worship is supposed to be, a heart of devotion to God. All you care about is checking off the little boxes of what you do in your church services. And as they're going through the motions and honoring God, he says, your guys, your hearts aren't anywhere in this process. Your worship is hollow. It is futile. And then to further show the focus, that the focus of real worship is on what's going on in your heart, he goes on in verse, uh, verses uh, 10 and 11, and then we're going to jump down to verse 17 in just a minute. He says, and he called the people to him, and he said to them, hear and understand this. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Verse 17. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a person. He says it's not the ceremony, it's not the going through the motions that makes things right or good. It is what's coming out of your heart. It is more about the stance of your heart than it is what's going on um, with the activity. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, oftentimes I bet we come to church, we sit in the pews, we sing the songs, we do all the things that churchy people do, and we never worship once while we're here because we're distracted by other things. We're thinking about ourselves, we're thinking about the quality of the service, we're thinking about other things we've got to do after church leaves, if it's a potluck day, we're our, in our heads we're already eating the food before the church service has even started because we can smell it cooking, okay, we get distracted and our brains are everywhere, our hearts are everywhere then, except on God and where, where they should be, on, on the glorious heavenly Father that we came here to worship and praise. And you know, here's the thing, I, I, want, to, I want us to acknowledge that this can be our problem because let me just say something about you special folks that are here today. It's Memorial Day weekend, and you're not on the lake in a boat. You're in church. You're the holy people. You're the devoted Christians that could be anywhere. You could be on a trip somewhere. You could have loaded all your kids up in the camper and gone somewhere. With, uh, any people in sight and enjoyed the glorious sound of, of silence. Well, I guess if you brought your kids, it's not silent. But um, you, you know what I mean. You could be anywhere on this three-day weekend, and you are in church. So we're like, we're like the special people. Hopefully you caught the sarcasm in my voice. Right? But even we that are here week in and week out, we can come in here and do everything that we normally do in a service and never once worship God. Just coming here does not mean you've worshipped. Just standing, singing, uh, standing and sitting and singing does not mean that you've worshipped. It is something that has to do with your heart and the direction that it is pointed. And it can look nice. You can, it can you know, be beautiful. Like that card the insurance company sent you. It can be pretty and it can be just right. But that don't mean that there's any feeling or emotion behind it. Now, 
one thing that we do, just like the Pharisees, is we kind of do create our own rules for what we think is a good, worshipful church service. And, man, Christians, we can get a little silly with what uh, rules we, we have about church and how church should play out, you know. Um, for them, it was about ceremonially washing their hands a certain way and what to touch and what not to touch. Um, for us, uh, we have rules like, thing, you know, songs can't be too long. Because we can only stand so long, you know. We can't have a song, you know, and uh, we have our, our songs can't be too long rule. It applies to new songs and old songs. Because if it's a new song, you can't say the chorus more than three times in a row at any point in the song. That's too much, too repetitive. Wrap it up, Ben. Get over with it, right? That's, what, that's, what people, that's, that's how you know, we think. It's done. Move on to the next song. If it's an old hymn, do we sing all the verses? Heavens, no. We sing one, two, and four. What happened to verse three? It's too long. You can't, you can't do th- all four verses. That's insane. We can't do two. That's a little too short. One, two, and four, though. Perfect, okay? Poor verse three. For those of you that have four kids, is that how you treat your third kid? You know, we bought, we bought presents for three of them, but uh, you couldn't do, couldn't do four. Take too long. Um, another rule we have is sermons need to be captivating. They need to be entertaining. They need to be funny, funny enough to keep my attention, but not too funny because this is church, not a comedy club. We have rules about standing and sitting. We can only stand and sit so many times because, again, we're at church, not at the gym. We're not here to work out. We're here to worship God. Um, I've heard people say, you know, sometimes we've had people come forward for communion. I've heard people say, you have to pass communion. You can't make people come get it. That's not church. Okay, that's a weird rule, but sure, why not? Um, You can come to church in a T-shirt, but if you wear shorts, you're a heathen because arm hair is godly and leg hair is gross. And if a man walks into church with shoes that reveal his toes, then he might as well have a sign on his head that says sinner. Because who wants to look at that? It's gross. And the real problem with our made-up church rules is that we don't broadcast them. We don't like get together in a committee and officially you know, stamp them out. We make them up in our heads and in our hearts. And if somebody breaks our rules, we're mad about it. We get upset about it. We can't worship. But... When all of us do this individually, we've got a lot of competing rules. You know, some churches, you go into them, and it's like, no, we got to be lighthearted because God is joyous, and they put a joyful song in our hearts. Other churches, you go into and it's, be quiet, be serious, be reverent, because the only way you can worship God is through serious reverence. Don't look up, look down. You're sad, you're, you're upset, you're reverent, you're repentant, you look down. That's rules, and, and different people, different Christians have different rules for what it means to worship Christ. And if somebody gets it wrong, then you're breaking my rule. We've had people who were used to more liturgical background come to our church, and this just felt like a crazy, ruleless hoedown to them. I mean, it was anarchy in their hearts. They couldn't stand that we didn't have, you know, straight, very, again, verse one, two, four, a few hymns, you know, some liturgical readings, a quick, short sermon, and out the door. They wanted that, that order, that very liturgical service. Um, some churches, you know, you got to sing a new song. You can't sing old songs. Got to be a new song. If you do throw in an old song, we got to like totally rewrite it so that it's new. Some churches you go into, if that song's not 500 years old, it might as well be rock and roll and it don't belong in church. That's just, uh, we have these rules. And they don't always line up. They aren't scriptural. They're just things that we've acquired through preference, through taste. And we, and we keep them. And when we walk into churches, we come with our list of rules. And if 
myself, Ben, or anybody else that's in here doesn't follow the rules, then we can't worship because they're not jumping through the right religious hoops. They're not going through things in the right, proper, godly order. And to make fun of ourselves a little bit here, let's talk about two rules I think we have. And this one, it cracks me up, especially, again, you get people who come in here, again, from a liturgical, reverent, high church mentality, and this just feels like chaos. You have somebody who comes from a little bit more lively church, feels like they walked into a morgue. Because on some time, we have the rules, don't sing too loud. Somebody might hear you. Somebody might think, they're worshiping Jesus, how dare they? And don't clap. Heaven forbid, don't clap. The only person who ever comes in this place and claps is Hannah Berger, and then she went to college and we lost our like only clapping. And here's the thing, Hannah Berger didn't care about your rule not to clap. She started clapping, everybody else was like, oh gosh, Hannah's clapping again. And she would do it, and she was on beat every time. I mean, the rest of us, part of the reason we don't clap, at least me personally, is I can't keep a beat to save my life. I am far too white to keep up a nice rhythmic clap through an entire service. Okay? But they're, don't, don't do anything with your hands, especially don't clap. And heaven forbid you put your hands in the air. Oh my gosh, what would happen if somebody put their hands up in church? Somebody might think we're Pentecostal in here. It'd be horrible. We can't, we can't have that, you know. And so we have these rules. And I, let's just be honest. If somebody came in, if I came up on church during a, a, a song time, and I just took a picture of the room, and then I took that picture and gave it to somebody who had no experience in church, they might think this was a group of people sitting through a seminar and using spreadsheets for tax purposes rather than people who were supposed to be worshiping the God of the universe. We're quiet, we're tame, we don't emote. Why? Because it's part of the rules that we've engaged. And when things get a little bit more than that, we get uncomfortable. When Ben says, sing out church, right before he jumps back in to a chorus, you're thinking, I ain't going to sing out for nothing because somebody might hear me. You see, these are things that we have added into that don't make sense. I mean, mean, they make sense to us, they're comfortable, they're cultural, but they can't determine whether or not we are able to worship. If, everything, if every service follows your rules, that doesn't mean it's worship. If every service followed my rules for what I like, that doesn't make it worship unless my heart is in the right place. And here's the other thing. You can sit through a service where it's everything you don't like, where it's music you don't love, where the preacher's not quite what your preference is, where the prayers are weird or where the, the people are too rowdy or too tame. You can sit through a service that is totally not what you like, and you can worship God with all your heart if you are focused on honoring him. Because you see, worship is not about the style of service, but the condition of your heart. Always. Worship is not about the style of service, but the condition of your heart. And let me tell you why our worship is often so hollow. Because it's more about us than God. And the second you make any of this about you, it stops being worship. The second I make any of this about me, it stops being worship. It's a concert, it's a lecture series, but it is not worship. And we cannot lose worship. It is an essential part of who we are called to be, of followers of Jesus. We are meant to be people who have a, an, yes, emotional, heartfelt adoration for our Father where we look to him. And that doesn't mean we have to get crazy, okay? Don't bring a tambourine and start banging it in the pews. That, that'd weird everybody out. I'm not saying we have to go over the top crazy, okay? We can still be tame a little bit to our comfort, but your heart has got to be pouring out to God. That is what we were meant to do. That is why he put us here. 
And the second it becomes about us, it stops being that. It stops being worship. We can take all our activities, all the songs, and suck all the worship and religious and spiritual meaning out of it. When it's about us, we'll get into arguments about preference, taste, style, music, volume, clothing, appropriateness. We'll get into fights about all of that stuff. When it is about us, we will become self-conscious as we sit through church. We'll be, we won't sing too loud because somebody might hear me. We can't clap because what if somebody, what would they think if I'm like enjoying the song and leaning into it? We can't put our hands up as a, as a sign of surrender to God because people might think I'm one of them crazy, over-the-top Christians. And it becomes about me thinking about me, not you focusing on your God. And when it's about us, I'm going to tell you, when it's about us, we're going to miss out on having a meaningful experience with our Creator. Um, I've heard Christians complain about certain songs that are too repetitive, too long, too short. I've heard every complaint in the book about music. And we'll get through someone complaining about a song, and I think, yeah, okay, I get it. I get it. it wasn't that, the style of it wasn't for you, but did you even pay attention to the beautiful, worshipful words that were in that song? I mean, if you, if you don't like the song, look at the words. Sometimes I'll sing, and I'll forget that I'll know the song, and I'll just sing along out of habit. But if I look up and I pause and, and look at the words, I'm like, man, this is a beautiful song talking about how good God is. And I think people miss that sometimes because, again, our rules. Um, I've heard people complain about sermons. Too long, too short. I don't get too short much anymore, but I used to. I don't know, too long, too short, too whatever, you know. And I get and I think, could you even tell me what verses were preached? you got all these critiques, but do you even know what the main point of the message was? I've heard people complain about uh, everything in, you could ever imagine in a church service, and I think, okay, but yeah, were you even remotely open to the fact that maybe the Holy Spirit wanted to work in your heart and challenge you and move you forward in your spiritual life? No, you weren't because you were too busy acting like a, a diving judge at the Olympics. That song's over. Two... Oh, the drummer, the drummer lost his beat, one, point one, you know, that sermon was awesome, 9.5, you know, that, boy, that prayer, that guy, did you hear that prayer, that was a beautiful prayer, woo, tens, all around, you know, we're too busy acting like that, and, and how this affects me than we are about worshiping and honor God through whatever it is. That's why your kid's artwork is meaningful, because there's a heart behind it, there's love behind it. That's what makes worship meaningful, your heart. The quality, the style, the rules we make up about it, secondary. I'm not saying it shouldn't be good or we shouldn't try hard to make it honoring God with excellence, but, but that's so secondary and we lose that and it makes our worship hollow. It digs out all the things that make it meaningful and it wastes our time together. Now, as with last week's message, I wish I could give you seven things to do to, to focus more on God, not yourself when you come to church, but that's not how this works. Because again, like I just said, we can't, it's not about doing certain things, it's about your heart. And so we're going to end the way we ended last week with a simple prayer that we're going to all read aloud together. That's how we're going to close out this morning. And we're going to ask God to help us to be less selfish, less me-focused, less focused on being a judge when we come in here, less consumer-minded on, on whether or not this is all working for me. This isn't for us. We come together to worship the God of the universe. Yes, that should, this will bless us, and yes, this will open our hearts, but everything we do in here should be pointed upward to our Heavenly Father. So why don't you join me as we read this prayer aloud. Heavenly Father, help me to not make worship about me. It's always only about you. Let your Holy Spirit turn my gaze outward so that I may focus on who you are, what you've done, 
and who you've called me to be as a daily worshiper. In Jesus' name, amen.